Welcome again, everyone, to the Unified Trust Under the Hood podcast, where we attempt to unpack, uncover, and illuminate financial planning and investment-related topics. I am your host, Kevin Avent, Managing Director of the Wealth Management Team here, and I have a couple of special guests with me today, Mrs. Karen McIntyre, one of our fiduciary investment advisors, and Mr. John Deglow, also fiduciary investment advisor. How are you all doing today? Doing great, Kevin. All right. Let's talk about what we are going to uh, discuss today, which I think is going to be kind of a fun topic. One, I think that a lot of people have a lot of misconceptions about things uh, when it comes to finances, investment management, financial planning, and so forth. And basically, it's just kind of some myths that are out there that you know you might hear when you're just talking to your coworker or talking to your friend or a family member. I can tell you that at Thanksgiving every year, I hear a ton of these with my family. You hear a lot of different financial myths. And so I thought we could maybe just talk about four or five of these today, just to kind of debunk some of these things that you hear about. So people really know the truth and understand when they hear something and somebody says maybe flippantly, well, you know what, actually, I know kind of the real story behind that. And for me, at least, one of the ones that I hear the most about financial planning, about investment management is, well, it's that's just for rich people. That's just for folks that have a lot more assets than, than maybe I do. And, and so I really don't need to pay attention to what's going on with my investments and particularly my retirement. You know, the retirement account is, is most folks largest asset other than their house. And maybe I don't need to really plan for the future that much because I just don't have enough to do that. And so, Karen, I'll start with you. Talk a little bit about what you think about that in terms of financial planning just being for, quote, the high net worth. Yeah, so I think one of the things that comes up, particularly when you talk about, oh, I'm I'm not ready to meet with a financial advisor, or I don't have enough money, is maybe you're a younger saver. Maybe you've just gotten married, you're out of college, you've got a couple kids, and you're trying to balance family life, work life, everything, and you say, look, I'm just trying to do what I can. I don't have enough money, and I don't need to talk to somebody. But I think the biggest takeaway is that having a trusted advisor, no matter what stage of life you're in and no matter how much money you have, you know, is always a good thing to get good advice and good guidance because every day there are decisions that you're having to make and there's competing interests and priorities that are coming out with that. And maybe you need a new roof and you need to figure out the best way to finance that. Or maybe you're trying to pay down your college debt in the most efficient, quick manner. Maybe you want to plan for your kid's college, your retirement plan. All of those things are applicable no matter how much money you have and no matter what stage of life you're in. And having a good advisor can offer you insight and tips and help you make really good decisions. Karen, I agree. Obviously, an advisor could help you get on the right investment allocation to begin with. So the less you have, the less you can afford to make a mistake. So even if it's early on, if you can get build some good investment habits to begin with, and an advisor can help you do that, can also help with the taxes on the short term and the long term, just make sure you're getting off on the right foot to begin with. Great point, John. So uh, sort of building on that in terms of, especially at a younger age, we see how important it is for people at a younger age to start saving early because the effect of, of compound interest. Time is, is your biggest asset, basically. Somebody who starts in their 20s, 
when they're talking about saving for retirement can actually be in a much better financial position than somebody that doesn't start until their mid-30s. And they may even save less than the one that started in their mid-30s. So, you know, I think another myth that we hear a lot is maybe just financial planning is just for retirement because there's so many more things that it can be than just retirement. So what are some of the other things that you all talk to clients about and advise on? Well, financial planning is just so much more than investments and retirement planning. For example, with my clients, I'll talk about everything from college and goal planning, goal funding, insurance and risk management, life insurance, long-term care, etc., estate planning issues, charitable giving strategies, tax strategies. I mean, there's there's so much that weaves into this. Yeah, and, and I think another piece of that, too, is I talk a lot about charitable giving and if you want to be philanthropic and the things that you want to do to leave a legacy or to instill those sort of values in your children or the rest of your family. And I think not everyone takes into account the fact that you should be building those causes and those passions into your planning as well. Absolutely. I agree, Karen. And and I know, John, we've talked about before, there's a lot of different ways you can give, you know, appreciated stock, cash. Um, one topic we've talked a lot about is giving from your IRA when you're over the age of 70 and a half and the tax benefits that that presents. But that this should be something that you're looking at throughout your planning stages and building that into your plan to make sure that you're achieving right. those goals right. as it's, well. It's more than just the numbers. It's about the person behind the numbers. Yeah. And each client is unique. Each has their own hopes, fears, dreams, and passions. And, and that has to be woven into the short term and the long term. Absolutely. And I think that's going to be a theme of what we talk about a lot today, probably, but also just in all the conversations that we have with our clients is, what are your goals? What do you want to do? And that's really sort of the starting off point for planning in general. Obviously, retirement's a part of that, but it can also be, like I said, charitable giving. It could be a mission trip. It could be a big vacation. It's college planning. It could be building your dream home. You know, whatever it is, you've got to have a plan to get there. Yeah. What about folks that are conflicted in terms of their goals, in terms of, well, I'm relatively young coming out of school I am making a, a relatively good income but I haven't really accumulated a whole lot of assets yet and also I have a significant amount of debt so how do you advise those folks in terms of how much should I save for retirement versus pay down debt and then what about health care and you've heard of this HSA got this vehicle available to me and how much should I be saving towards health savings account versus retirement versus paying down debt and What's sort of the the best way to handle all those? Well, a lot of it just starts with getting out a pencil and paper and writing it all down and just having that conversation. Uh, Most of us aren't Bill Gates or Warren Buffett, so we don't get to have everything we want. In a perfect world, we'd be able to max out our 401k, our HSAs, and take every trip we want and have every car we want. But life is about making some choices, and I think a planner can help you walk through that process of getting it all down on paper and showing you that, okay, here are the priorities we've got to take care of, okay, so then how much is left over, what's your discretionary income, and how do we want to plan for the future while also living for today? And the debt, particularly school debt, is just really ballooning now, and everyone's walking away with a lot more than they like. You know, obviously we're planners, we want everyone putting away in an HSA and a retirement, but I think the biggest takeaway there is pay your debt down and do that as fast as you can, um, given how that fits into your budget, because you'll be amazed at what 
money you have left over when that's gone that can be just pushed into various savings vehicles and ways to make that work for you instead of just debt that's hanging around your neck. I hate to use the B word, budget. I don't like getting into fine-tooth budgeting either, but sometimes it is just mapping it out on a piece of paper, and if you're only bringing in 5000 a month, but you've got 6000 going out, something's got to give. You've got to sit down and go through it and make some choices. And there again, I think that's where a planner comes in because it's a third party, they're neutral, they're just going to give you the best advice and take a lot of that emotion out of it for you and help help you make a good choice. Or maybe find some balances, maybe find some ways to do it that you didn't even think of. Right. Cover the fundamentals, cover the bases first. Make sure you sort of have you know, an adequate reserve. Something happens, you got that. And make sure your liabilities are covered and from an insurance standpoint. And then you can start looking at how you should portion out after that. But, you know, obviously competing goals, you have to make some sacrifices and put together a budget and so forth, and a planner can help you with that. So I think that kind of dovetails nicely into the next myth I hear a lot, and that is if I hire a planner, how much do they cost? Does this cost too much for me to get any benefit out of it? Maybe I don't even feel like I have enough to hire somebody, but... Even if I do, is the cost too much where it's prohibitive? I think the cost is always one of those features that makes you take pause. And certainly there are a lot of different options out there, and there is a cost involved. The way to think about it, I think, is this is an investment for your future. This is going to help you sort of set yourself on a path. So making that investment is going to ultimately benefit you in the long run. The key initially is to be critical and be a good steward of your money, make good decisions, evaluate the people that are offering you their services, and really ask tough questions about what are you getting, what services are they offering you, what are the costs, be mindful of hidden costs or additional costs that might nickel and dime you a little bit along the way. Make sure you're getting a good value for the service. I agree, Karen. Um, you know, a good advisor can add value in so many ways that will pay for itself if you get a good advisor. For example, I had a client recently asking me what my fee was. Shortly thereafter, she said something that made me stop her. And long story short, as I saved her about $80,000 on Social Security that she was leaving on the table. My fee never came up again. Yeah. Um, so the point is, is that there are ways that a, a good advisor are, is going to keep you from making some mistakes that will more than pay for itself. I would say just in the last couple of weeks, I've done enough qualified charitable distribution strategies for clients who had never heard of it. Their CPAs hadn't mentioned it, or maybe they did and they didn't remember it. And literally saving clients five, ten, twenty thousand dollars in taxes a year. That more than paid my fee. Yeah, it adds up. So what about this one? When we're talking about does a financial advisor cost too much? What about, well, I don't pay my financial advisor. You're paying him or her whether you know it or not. Sometimes it's embedded in the price of the products. There's a load up front. I had somebody the other day call me and tell me that they got in a 529 plan, which is a college savings vehicle, and it was costing them 5%. Oh, man. So right right up front, every move that they made was costing them 5%. And, of course, I just told them on the phone how to do it for 0.13%. So, again, I think an advisor can save you a lot of money. Yeah, and it's also back to what we were talking about being maybe vigilant about your fees is that those are good questions to ask is say, 
ask them point blank, how do you get paid? How do you get paid? Yeah, because yeah, there are various ways they can get paid. And uh, we see this all the time and people bring in their statements and you can't make heads or tails of, of actually, there's nowhere on, in the statements can you discern how they're actually getting paid. And they can be getting paid, as John mentioned, in upfront loaded mutual funds or they could be paying a very small upfront fee and more ongoing or no upfront fees and even more ongoing or potentially what's called revenue sharing payments that are being paid to them by the funds being sold to the client and the client doesn't even know about them they're not disclosed they're certainly not paid back to them and it's just all in the sort of the pocket of the advisor and that's a problem because got inherent biases in that right i mean if i know that i can sell you a fund that benefits me it might be okay for you may not be the best thing for you in the industry that that word by the way is called suitability might be just okay for you, but really good for me. The client's thinking, well, this is good. I've got no incentive to change that as an advisor because I'm getting paid for it. And let's say that the fund was doing okay for a time period, a year, two years, and then didn't, and didn't like in a big way. And that happens. I've got no incentive to change that as an advisor. And that's where this idea of people saying, well, I don't pay my financial Well, yes, you do, whether you know it or not. Well, yeah, yeah and, and maybe even you're paying them twice then, one, in the form of fees on the back end of your investments, but two, that's eating into your total return oh, and the yeah. quality in your portfolio, which is impacting your outcome. So th- those are big costs. Yeah. Transparency is a big issue. I had somebody come in recently and ask me, can you tell how much I'm paying my advisor? And they showed me what they had is 18 pages of statement and info on their account. I gave up looking after an hour. I could not tell what they were paying. It's all buried in there. They don't want you to know. People need to ask, how are you compensated? And not just how are you compensated, you know, how much are you compensated? You should know that. It should be very easy to ascertain what you're paying for the advice that you're getting. And this is going to sound like a plug, but honestly, this is the way it should be done in the industry, okay? If a client asks you how much you get paid and how you get paid, we have a pretty easy answer to that and that is we actually send out our clients a separate invoice from their investment portfolio statement every single quarter which details exactly the average daily balance of their portfolio the fees that they are charged how that fee is calculated and any kind of revenue sharing payments that actually offset that so the revenue sharing payments what I alluded to earlier they're basically payments that financial intermediaries collect by mutual fund companies to sell their funds You don't even know about them. Most people don't know about them, but they do exist. Well, we not only disclose that we get them, we account for them and we actually use them to offset our fees. So the client gets the benefit of any kind of revenue sharing payment. So there's no bias that we're putting funds in somebody's portfolio because it benefits us. And the client knows exactly what they pay us every single quarter. So it's a really easy conversation, highly transparent, and that's the way the industry should operate. But unfortunately, it, as we see all too often, it does not. Um, which kind of brings us to the next one that I hear too, and that is, well, I can just do this on my own. I won't say this is a 100% myth because I do think there are people that can do it on their own. I do think there are definitely people that have the time, inclination, and intellect, and emotional intelligence to do it on their own. So I'm not saying this is a 100% myth, but the average person that thinks, well, I can just do this on my own, I think that is dangerous. And so can you kind of speak to that sort of myth that we hear in the marketplace? Well, I think you're right, Kevin. I think some people can do this on their own, but big warning there, caveat, is mistakes can be very costly if you don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you don't know. 
I do this for a living, you, Karen, we all do this for a living at least five days a week, and I'm still learning. I've been in this business 20, 25 years, and it still amazes me that there's new things that I uncover that I hadn't seen before. I, I work with other experts that I can call and get good answers and, and make sure that everything is woven in to all your other plans. One of the things that I see a lot is people might have a good estate planning attorney and, and maybe a guy that they call on for their insurance and maybe they listen to a good CPA. They have three or four good plans going, but they don't match well. They're not in sync. There's nobody really pulling it all together for them. They're all isolated plans. And if you're trying to do it yourself, you might miss some of those things and they, those plans are contradicting each other. So at the end of the day, even if you knew everything that you need to know, are you keeping up with everything? Because every time Congress gets together, there's new rules, new strategies, new concepts, or outdated some old rule that you were doing. So it's really a full-time job to keep up with this. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It is a full-time job. And you have to ask yourself, where is your best time spent? And for a lot of people, they have families, they have farms, they have jobs, they have other things. You know, they'd rather be playing golf on a Saturday than reading the most recent Federal Reserve meeting minutes. You know, we're recording this in Kentucky when she says we've got families and farms. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You might need to be heading out to Keeneland. I don't know. But uh, you have to decide where your time is best spent. Well, that's where you get the best stock tips at Keeneland. Yeah, that's, (laughs) that's right. Maybe that's where your retirement savings is going. For those, by the way, who are not from Kentucky, Keeneland is a racetrack where horses race, and I highly encourage you to come check it out sometime. It runs in April and October. Keeneland can thank me later for that little plug. Yeah, so whether you're in Kentucky or Colorado or Florida or wherever, you have to just find somebody that you can trust to help you with your financial planning and all the decision making so that you can focus on the things that you want to do in your life and not worry about you know, making those decisions and having to do all that research. And I think that's kind of where a lot of the new robo-advisors have come in is they're offering platforms for individuals that want to sort of do-it-yourself scenario, but it offers a platform where you can take advantage of their resources, which is a great way to learn and see what the whole process is about. But I think it's also important to realize that there's some pitfalls there. And the first is... If you're doing it yourself, are you able to work with a professional, a CFP or an accountant or somebody that's able to give you advice on the decisions that you're making? And two, what are some of those technical difficulties that you could experience? We were talking just the other day, one of the times when there was one of those flash crashes and there was a lot of activity in the stock market in one afternoon, one of the advisor platforms just shut trading down. And you have to ask, are you comfortable with not having access and information and understanding exactly what's going on in that moment when you can't log in and they're saying, we're sorry? There's no question about it. You guys have touched on that really well. And and I think we've also sort of established that financial planning is for almost everyone. And it involves way more than just looking at investments and the portfolio. But I want to get to one that is another one that you hear out there, and that is when it comes to investing, you can have big returns without taking big risk. I've been in this for 20 years now. Everyone sort of wants their cake and eat it too, right? Where they want to have these 
great returns and think, well, it really didn't take all that much risk to get there, so why don't we just take more risk to try to get more return? Nothing changes that sort of behavior and that mentality, and that speaks to that sort of greed and fear cycle we mentioned earlier, but nothing changes that kind of behavior more than a bear market, and especially a really bad bear market like 2008-2009 time period. Uh, when sort of everybody's risk tolerance went to zero, okay, because it was just awful. But before that, it seemingly was unlimited. There's really not that much risk in the market. Can we get more return? Can we get more return? So I don't know about you guys, but I've certainly experienced that over time in, in this industry, in this profession. So can you speak to that a little bit? I think that risk is a reality. But again, some of this goes back to that conversation about goals-based planning and building investment strategies within your varying accounts that are going to meet the return goals that you need to meet your overall goals for your plan, whatever it is you're trying to achieve, either in retirement or some of the shorter term goals we discussed. You have to identify where your comfort zone is, but you also have to say, do I need to take on undue risk for a big return if I don't need to take that risk on. There can be a really good place there to say, if you're meeting all of your goals and you're doing everything you want to, do you need to take on risk and add to that volatility and add to that feeling in the pit of your stomach when it's a bad day on Wall Street? Where can you find your own comfort level? Again, I keep agreeing with you, Karen, but risk is simply volatility. There's ways to mitigate some of that risk. Holding your investments for a longer time period, we can smooth that volatility out a little bit. Diversification helps quite a bit by investing in several uncorrelated assets. But still, in order to get more return, you're going to have to take on more risk. Just think about it. Why would an investment offer greater returns for less risk? If it did, then others would want it so much that they would just bid up the price back to where you you're not getting much of a return for it if it's safe. And so you're just going to have to take more risk. You can diversify it. You can mitigate it. You can invest over time. There's things you can do to lessen that risk, but you are going to have to take more risk to get more return. Yeah, I agree. It kind of goes back to that old adage of if it sounds too good to be true, it right. probably is. Right. And isn't it possible to take more risk and get less return? That is the risk. <laughs> yeah. Looking at some of the largest foundations and endowment returns data of 2018, and, and really I think that I've seen over the last like five years annualized, you know, you look at what should be some of the smartest money in the country, Harvard, Yale, MIT, Stanford, their returns are not that great. Some of them are behind benchmarks. Why is that? I think it's because they maybe try to subscribe to the theory. They can get a little bit more return with less risk. What they're doing is they're actually adding more risk and getting less return. Well, don't forget that one of the bigger risks in the room for most of my clients is inflation. It's invisible risk. Everybody wants that CD at 2% that's going to have a nice smooth ride and never goes down. You know, you don't have to check CNBC to see if the market was down because my CD didn't lose any money today, but actually it did. It's losing purchasing power. By the time you pay taxes and by the time inflation takes a bite out of it, you've lost purchasing power. You don't notice that week to week or even year to year, but over the course of 10, 15, 20, 30 years in your retirement, it starts eating you up. Yeah. And that's why even our most conservative clients in retirement, we still have them some in stocks and diversified, but you still want them some in stocks because you've got to beat inflation over time. Yeah. Well, but John brings up other 
forms of risk because what we've just been talking about here is from an asset allocation standpoint and being risky from our investments. But there's also risks in depending on what stage of your life in, either holding too much cash or not enough cash. There's proper exposure to, say, a particular area of the market. You can have a, a, a balanced portfolio, but maybe you've got too much in one small cap or international, and, and that could kill you. Timing risk is great. Are you retiring soon? Tax liabilities. You know, there are a lot of other areas that pose risk that don't necessarily have to do with the day-to-day on the market. I completely agree, and I'd say that that is a massive myth out there. It's easy to trick yourself into believing it, by the way. Trust know. me, Kevin, I'm looking for that 10% TCD <laughs> as well. It's, it just, the, it's not like it's a secret that we hoard just for ourselves and won't give to clients. Yeah. It just doesn't exist. It's just human nature to have a little get-rich-quick in us. You know, I think almost everybody does. Not everybody, but almost everybody does. And I even had a comment said to me recently, You know, obviously the stock market has been extremely good in 2019. The S&P 500, as of a few days ago, was up over 20%. And one of our investment strategies was up, I think, 22%. It was uh, up better than the S&P 500. And I communicated this to a particular client. And the client said, well, I could always be up 25. (laughs) And, and, And we laughed. He was joking, sort of. You know what I mean? Like, like so we, we laughed about it, but it's this old sort of uh, idea that you can always need a little bit more. You like Again, it comes back to that fear and greed cycle. So the market, it's a marathon, not a sprint. The market goes up 80% of the time, does not go up all the time, but 80% of the time is a pretty good number. So if, if you're thinking, well, what's the market going to do? And, and you ask your advisor, they'll probably tell you, well, more than likely it's going to go up, but it may not go up today or tomorrow or a month from now, but 80% of the time it's going to go up. And so that's a pretty good bet for you. Well, just remember, it's that volatility that you're getting rewarded for. If it wasn't for the volatility, if it was a straight line, you'd get CD rates. Right. You're getting rewarded for this volatility. So the drama is part of the game, right? Like you get rewarded for the drama. And who doesn't like drama? Everybody likes drama. Doesn't everybody like drama? Karen, you like drama, don't you? I try to stay away from it unless it's on Bravo TV. (laughs) (laughs) I think we've learned a lot today. I think we learned a lot about uh, financial uh, myths. Thank you all. I think you've done a very good job communicating, I think, about some of the financial myths that we see and hear about. Really appreciate all the listeners tuning in, and we look forward to seeing you next time.